0: Chapter One of The Trial of a New Society by Justice Ebert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Industrial Democracy Arrives. On the morning of the twelfth of January, nineteen twelve, the riot call was sounded on the bells of the City Hall at Lawrence, Massachusetts. It was the first time in nineteen years that the call had been heard, and then only as a test the call required the presence of every police officer in the city regular special and reserved plain-clothes men night men in fact all the guardians of peace and property the call came like a thunderbolt from a clear sky there had been no previous indication of any need for the entire police resources of the community lawrence was apparently a peaceful and prosperous city too active to be riotous and too contented to be destructive All its classes were, to all appearances, living in mutual harmony and accord. Why then this riot call? Why this hurry and scurry, this rush from all directions, this reporting at headquarters, of all its police, armed and ready for every possible affray? The answer is one typical of the times. Lawrence is renowned as a textile centre it outranks any other city in the nation in the production of woollen and worsted goods in addition its cotton industry is important lawrence is situated on the Merrimack river whose immense water power has made it a favourable location for big mills in lawrence the hand loom of the early new england farm and the small mill of the last century with its tens of thousands of capital have both been replaced by the woollen trust the whitman morgan combinations of cotton and woollen interests and other powerful organizations of capital, with their tens, nay, hundreds of millions of financial backing. Lawrence is, accordingly, a city dependent on corporate wealth. The mill corporations are its chief taxpayers, and the chief employers of its inhabitants. Of the 85,000 population of Lawrence, over 35,000 are enrolled in the army of mill employees. They have no property rights in the mills and are for the most part mere tenders of machines without skill and principally of foreign birth as were the pilgrim fathers who preceded them and who murdered the native indians who opposed their coming these armies toil for the enrichment of stockholders who do not live in lawrence and who take no part in its production of textile goods who in brief are far more foreign to lawrence than are the most recent arrivals from abroad under the benign protection of schedule k of the tariff laws of this country they exact exceptional dividends with more ferocity than shylock exacted his pound of flesh in all of which they do not differ from the capitalist class in general whose riches and fame are primarily due to the surplus values that is the wealth stolen from labor in the form of profits interest and rent let us look at these mills therefore a little closer for in looking at them we are looking at the real lawrence they are the basis of its prosperity its heart and soul just as the shoe and electric industries are the material basis and the heart and soul of lynn or the industries of any place and time are the basis of the material legal and moral institutions the heart and soul of that place and time the principal mills in lawrence are those of the american woolen company this company is the largest single corporation in the textile industry It is a consolidation of 34 mills, located mostly in New England. For these reasons, it is known as the Woollen Trust. The American Woollen Company does about one-ninth of the woollen and worsted manufacturing in the United States. Its 1911 output was valued at $45 million. The wood mill of the American Woollen Company, located in Lawrence, is claimed by the company to be the largest worsted mill in the world it is one thousand nine hundred feet long three hundred feet wide and contains thirteen hundred thousand square feet of floor space the output for nineteen eleven is said to be valued at nine million dollars the washington and Ayer mills adjoin the wood mill they supply the raw material to the other mills of the company located outside of lawrence all three mills wood washington and ayer are situated on the south side of the merrimac They are modern brick structures, six stories high, almost a half mile long altogether, and surmounted by an ornate clock tower. A bridge at Union Street connects them with Lawrence proper. Sixteen thousand five hundred persons, or almost one half of the mill workers of Lawrence, are employed by the American Woolen Company. Its general offices are in Boston. The American Woolen Company always pays seven per cent on its capitalization of seventy million dollars. This is said to be largely water. It is alleged in some quarters that its entire plant can be replaced at a cost ranging from $10 million to $20 million. It is a well known fact that its leading officers and stockholders are connected with mill machine and construction companies that batten on its resources. William Wood, the president, owns two palatial residences. When asked in court, How many automobiles have you? he replied, I don't know. I haven't any time to count them necessity doesn't require that he should take time to count his wealth he has so much of it as to render the performance superfluous another noteworthy corporation on the south side of the merrimac is the lawrence dye works this is the leading corporation in the consolidation of four mills known as the united states worsted company whose properties it owns besides its own this two and a half million dollar corporation makes a specialty of dyeing and finishing worsted goods From 1884 to 1900, over 100% was paid from its profits. Since then, the average yearly dividend has been nearly 20%. The stockholders of the Lawrence Dye Works now receive in five years that for which they formerly had to wait seven. The United States Worsted Company itself pays 7.37% annually. It manufactures fancy worsted and woolen goods in a six-story modern brick and concrete weaving mill overlooking the power-dam at lawrence next in rank to the woolen trust mills are the pacific mills located on the north side of the Merrimack in lawrence proper this company manufactures cotton and worsted dress goods its attorney james r dunbar is also attorney for the morgan railroad interests in new england men conspicuous on the boards of directors of these railroad interests are also conspicuous on the board of directors of the pacific mills the Pacific Mills is erecting new mills at South Lawrence, east of the wood mill, whose total capacity is said to exceed that of the latter. Its employees number 6,000. The Pacific Mills has a capital stock of $3,000,000 and a surplus of $5,141,817. Its assets in two years, 1909-1911. to 1911, Increased from eleven million fifteen thousand two hundred and eighty one dollars to twelve million eight hundred and thirty eight thousand two hundred and seventy nine dollars, or a total of one million eight hundred and twenty two thousand nine hundred and ninety eight dollars. This corporation paid dividends nineteen oh seven three hundred and twenty dollars, nineteen oh eight one hundred and twenty, nineteen oh nine one hundred and sixty, nineteen ten one hundred and twenty. 1911, 120. This is on non-taxable shares with a par value of $1,000. The total return to investors in 10 years was 148%. This is an average yearly return of 15%. In other words, in 10 years, the shareholders of the Pacific Mills not only ate their cake more abundantly than they made it, but they also have it now more abundantly than ever before this is due to the kindness of the present system of capitalism which takes from labor all it produces giving in return therefrom wages that is enough of labor's product for labor to subsist on and reproduce more labor after the pacific mills in importance come the arlington mills owned by the whitman interests so called after william whitman its president and principal stockholder who was also a director in six textile corporations closely allied to the one over which he presides Whitman is credited on inside circles with being the father of Schedule K, also with having Morgan backing. The Arlington Mills is capitalized at eight million dollars. Its annual output reaches the total value of fifteen million dollars. Its dividends were six percent from eighteen seventy seven to nineteen oh three, eight percent from nineteen oh three to nineteen twelve. In nineteen oh five, the Whitman Mills also declared a stock dividend of thirty three and one half percent its mills in lawrence employ over five thousand operatives and are continually expanding in size and importance like many other new england mills the arlington mill is increasing its capacity out of its earnings dividends grow and so does the value of the property producing them thanks to the productivity of labor in addition to the pacific and the arlington mills there are in lawrence proper the atlantic pemberton everett Duck and thirteen other mills whose combined capital runs well up above the century mark the brick buildings they own are mostly of an older type than those of the woolen trust already described and are built in close succession to one another making them look as one they are surmounted by belfries and smokestacks fences and walls surround them entrances through gates that are reached by bridges which cross a power canal running parallel with the mills and feeding them this canal cuts off the mills from the city just as the moats of a mediaeval castle cut it off from the surrounding country the mills are on a private street called very appropriately canal street a railroad runs right alongside of them and pierces them in order to get to a bridge crossing the river all of which helps along the isolation and fortification all the mills on the north side of the merrimac thus isolated and fortified are good dividend payers the point is well illustrated in a story gleaned from the press and told by william d haywood about mr turner president of the duck mill as follows mr turner is a man of many wives and some wards he married the last ward after he got rid of his wives she lived in brooklyn they took a honeymoon it was to chicago they had a palace train two pullman cars were reserved for the bride's dogs when these two carloads of dogs arrived in chicago with their mistress they were taken to a fashionable hotel registered assigned to private rooms and were fed on the choicest cuts of meat porterhouse steak none but the extremely wealthy like the woods turner and the textile barons of lawrence can indulge in such wasteful extravagancies to even the moderately wealthy middle class it is not given to have more automobiles than one can count or to provide pullman cars fashionable hotel suites and porterhouse steaks for the dogs belonging to one's latest of many brides similarly indulged before such expenditures are only possible among those possessing multi millions such as come out of the mills of lawrence contrast now the wealth expansion and luxury of lawrence's corporation magnates with the poverty degradation and misery of lawrence's wealth producers Despite consolidation, tariff, and perfected machinery, the wages and conditions of textile workers show a steady decline. According to the United States Census, from 1890 to 1905, textile wages had decreased 22 to 19.5% of the value of the gross output. This is a difference of $53,686,035, a stupendous sum to these poorly paid workers, as will be shown further along this decline is made possible by increasing the number of looms to the worker while at the same time reducing the pay through the competition of those thus displaced in august 1911 a call was issued for a general organization of all the textile workers along the Merrimack river in order to more effectively combat the tendency to reduce wages and intensify labor at one and the same time the appeal opens thus One hundred cotton weavers are fighting against the following conditions which the Atlantic mills are trying to impose upon them. Twelve looms instead of seven, at forty-nine cents per cut instead of seventy-nine cents. Those are, in a few words, the conditions against which the weavers are revolting. Seven looms producing two cuts a week at the rate of seventy-nine cents per cut leaves a salary of eleven dollars and six cents per week. Twelve looms producing two cuts each per week at the rate of 49 cents per cut, gives a salary of $11.76. Admitting that each weaver can make 24 cuts each on 12 looms, which is practically impossible, he will necessarily have to operate 5 looms and produce 10 cuts more each week for the sum of 70 cents, so that it is really a theft of $7.20 per week which the corporation will make on each and every weaver and at the same time throw 2 employees out of 5 on the streets. this method of doing more work with less men at less wages than formerly was also introduced into the woollen mills here also the employees fought the two loom system which meant a doubling up of their toil and the cutting in half of their numbers with the inevitable reduction of wages that the competition of the unemployed made possible numerous strikes were inaugurated to combat this tendency but all of them failed because they were partial and sporadic Fought by the craft directly involved alone, while the other crafts remained at work and scabbed on it, that is, assisted the corporations to victory. This tendency was further emphasized by the speeding up, encouraged by the premium system, which added to the nervous strain while gradually lowering wages. Accordingly, wages in the Lawrence mills have become mere pittances. The $11.76 per week for weavers, specified above, Are exceptionally good wages the report of commissioner of labor charles p neal shows that for the week ending november twenty fifth nineteen eleven twenty two thousand textile workers in lawrence averaged eight dollars and seventy six cents in wages this average is for a good week only and is inclusive of the wages paid to all grades of labor the commissioner reports that almost one-third of the twenty two thousand earned less than seven dollars while only 17.5% earned $12 and over for the select week in which the payroll was averaged. It is pointed out in Lawrence that over 13,000 workers are not accounted for in the Commissioner's investigation. These certainly are numerous enough to be considered. It is also claimed that during the pay week preceding January 12, 1912, the payroll for 25,000 employees amounted to $150,000, or an average of $6 for the week thus the commissioner's figures are to be taken with qualifications when put forth as representing actual conditions the actual wages paid in some of the mills make startling reading they recall the time in the eighties when henry ward beecher is alleged to have said a dollar a day is enough pay for any american laborer to live on a statement that aroused furious opposition in the american woolen company's spinning winding and beaming departments and dye-houses Wages were $5.10, $6.05, $6.55, $7.15, and $7.55 per week in 1911. This is for a full week only. Often, when work is slack, such wages as $2.30 and $2.70 a week are the rule. The writer met in Lawrence Weavers who informed him that they averaged $5 a week following the Panic of 1907 and these were men with wives and families custom often reveals conditions where all else may hide them in lawrence it is the custom to demand weekly rents for tenements occupied by the working class where wages are small and employment unsteady it is realized that monthly rents are difficult of accumulation and collection the rents vary from one dollar to six dollars per week they are higher on the average than in new york chicago philadelphia boston cleveland buffalo and milwaukee in addition lawrence offers none of the various social advantages of these larger cities borders or lodgers were found in fifty-eight per cent of the homes visited by federal investigators they are necessary to the raising of rent instalment houses also do a thriving business in lawrence Quote, easy payments unquote, is the deceptive means by which extortionate prices are made possible of payment by the workers who are already badly fleeced in the mills. Lawrence is also the scene of much experimenting in cooperative enterprises, several of which have been successful. Where wages are low, as in Belgium and England, the economies and thrift made possible by cooperative buying and selling becomes imperative, especially is this true in view of the increasing cost of living. Lawrence is by no means exempt from the latter. For instance, anthracite coal was $10.50 a ton in Lawrence during the winter of 1911 to 1912. The cost of living is higher in Lawrence than elsewhere. Congestion is worse in Lawrence than in any other city in New England, Boston excepted. Frame houses and rear houses are more numerous than in the congested districts of Manchester, New Hampshire, Lowell, Salem, Fall River, and New Bedford, Massachusetts. A terrible conflagration is always possible, that construction being regarded as extra-hazardous. In addition, the rear houses are entered by alleyways and long, narrow passages leading from them, which make deadly flues and fire traps. These alleyways and passages are also dirty and dark, moldy and foul-smelling. They are the playgrounds of the children who inhabit them. Juvenile offenders are numerous in Lawrence. The cause is evident our valuation did not increase with our population said commissioner of public safety c f lynch addressing the berger congressional investigation of the lawrence strike and consequently we were faced with a serious financial problem as a reflex of lawrence's poverty and squalor this needs no comment malnutrition and premature death are common in lawrence the textile industry is a family industry Its subdivision makes possible the employment of all the members of the family. It also makes possible, consequently, the destruction of the textile family. Of the 22,000 textile workers investigated by Commissioner Neal, 12,150, or 54%, are males, and 9,772, or 44.6%, are females eleven point five percent of all of them being under eighteen years of age the mill workers claim that over fifty percent of lawrence's operatives are women and children as there are over thirteen thousand to be accounted for by the commissioner and as his figures verge very closely on the claim made the latter may be taken for granted without discussion it is plain that under the above circumstances family life outside of the mills must suffer Women who arise at 5.30 a.m. in order to be enabled to do housework and labor in a dusty, noisy mill until 5.30 p.m. at starvation wages are bound to bear and rear offspring who are underfed and badly cared for. Every one of the 119 children sent to New York in February 1912 was found on physical examination to be suffering from malnutrition in some form. As William D. Haywood most eloquently puts it, those children had been starving from birth, They had been starved in their mothers' wombs, and their mothers had been starving before the children were conceived. Malnutrition brings about a disease called rachitis, or rickets. The writer has seen so many children with crooked and distorted limbs and bones in Lawrence as to be impressed with the fact. Likewise has he observed the anemic and weazened expression, not only of infants, but also of adults. Underfeeding is common in Lawrence the infant death rate in lawrence is very high for every thousand births there are one hundred and seventy-two deaths under one year of age this is greater than twenty-eight other cities with which lawrence has been compared the same is practically true of lawrence's general death rate which is seventeen point seven per one thousand population a rate which surpasses that of twenty-six other cities and is above the average for the united states In the matter of longevity, according to Lawrence's mortuary records, its lawyers and clergymen lead, with an average length of life of 65.4 years. Manufacturers come next with 58.5 years. Farmers follow with 57 years. Mill operatives have the shortest lifespan. From the mortality records of 1,010 operatives, the average length of life was found to be 39.6 years the average longevity for spinners is three and two-fifths a year less, or thirty-six years. On an average, the spinner's life is twenty-nine years less than that of the lawyers or clergymen's, and twenty-two and a half years shorter than that of the manufacturer. Says Dr. Shapley, a Lawrence practitioner who made a special study of the subject, thirty-six out of every one hundred of all the men and women who work in the mill die before or by the time they are twenty-five years of age. This means that out of the long line which enters the mill you may strike out every third person as dying before reaching maturity, every fourth person in the line as dying from tuberculosis, and further every second person, that is one alternating with a healthy person, will die of some form of respiratory trouble, Unquote. The same authority states that a considerable number of the boys and girls die within the first two or three years after beginning work, Unquote so poorly are they nourished and developed that they have not the stamina to withstand the strain here then is the lot of the textile workers of lawrence steadily declining and low wages intensified and unsteady employment bad housing underfeeding no real family life and premature death the benefits of industrial evolution and national legislation go not to them but to the woods turners et al who live in wasteful extravagance upon their merciless exploitation regardless of common decency and in defiance of the social spirit of the times this was the condition of affairs in lawrence massachusetts on january twelfth nineteen twelve when something extraordinary happened in the big mills there about nine a m on that date the employees in one of the departments of the everett mill swept through its long floors wildly excited carrying an american flag which they waved amid shouts of strike 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 all out come on all out strike strike from room to room they rushed an enraged indignant mass arming themselves with the picker sticks used in the mills they went from loom to loom persuading and driving away operatives and stopping looms tearing weaves and smashing machines where repeated attempts were made to run them despite their entreaties which seldom failed of instant response as they swept on their numbers grew and with them grew the contagion the uproar and the tumult out of the everett mill they rushed these hundreds of peaceful workers now aroused passionate and tense on the street outside of the mill gates they were met by excited crowds that were congregated there all of them coalesced into one big mass and as such moved over the union street bridge on to the wood washington and Ayer mills where the same scenes were enacted once more men women and children italians poles syrians all races all creeds already aroused to action before the coming of the crowd outside some of whom rushed the gates and entered ran through the thousands of feet of floor space shouting strike 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 all out strike 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 sweeping everything before them and rendering operation in many departments so impossible as to cause their complete shutdown. these thousands also poured out into the streets and with their fellow-workers already assembled there choked up the highway blocking cars and suspending traffic generally while at the same time hooting and howling raising speakers and leaders on their shoulders throwing ice and snow and bombarding the windows in the adjoining kunhart and duck mills smashing every pane of glass there a destructive menacing mob where peace had reigned before disorder and violence now seemed rampant the something extraordinary that had happened in lawrence massachusetts on january twelfth nineteen twelve was an industrial revolt the mill workers had risen in their rising they sounded not only a riot call but also the keynote to the revolution of all the workers in industry to the industrial democracy peaceful lawrence like every american city had a submerged lawrence a working-class lawrence that had erupted and in so doing sprung all the social layers above it that held it down into the air so the riot call was sounded and the police tried to force the submerged down to where they formerly had been so did the militia so did the state so did all the repressive agencies of modern that is capitalist society but they failed a new force had arisen the workers democratically and industrially organized the workers thus united are invincible it is labor alone that defeats labor but this is running ahead of the story to return the cause of the lawrence industrial revolt was a common thing to wit a wage reduction a beneficent state law had been passed reducing hours of labor for women and children from fifty-six to fifty-four per week when this law went into effect the mill corporations reduced wages proportionately without any previous notice whatever at the same time they speeded up the machines and so got in fifty-four hours at fifty-four hours pay the same output that had been secured in fifty-six hours at fifty-six hours pay the operatives only notice of the reduction was the short pay in their envelopes short pay short pay was the cry that had preceded the uprising the more the workers reflected on that short pay the more resentful and unrestrainable they became in many thousands of cases the reduction only amounted to thirty cents a week yet this apparently insignificant amount the price of a good havana cigar to a wood or a turner was enough to turn lawrence topsy-turvy and to alter the subsequent political history of the country for the lawrence strike destroyed the presidential prospects of governor foss and hastened the formation of the progressive party with its program of industrial and social reform though the wage reduction was small in amount the textile workers of lawrence realized from abundant experience that the wages they would receive under the fifty-four hours law would not be sufficient to live on their position as already shown was near enough to absolute starvation as to leave no doubt on that point so rather than suffer the further weekly loss of six loaves of bread so badly needed a great part rose en masse in spontaneous revolt blind instinctive but primal and therefore fundamental and far-reaching was the uprising of these miserable workers none had expected such a violent outbreak true according to commissioner neill a far-sighted mill official in boston had warned against the prospect of one but his was a lone voice crying out in the wilderness on january second nineteen twelve some of the workers organized in the industrial workers of the world tried to confer on the fifty four hour law with the mill owners but were snubbed for their pains the weaving department of the everett mill and the spinning department of the arlington mill had struck on the afternoon of january eleventh a meeting of one thousand italians and poles held in fords hall on the evening of january tenth decided to walk out other outbursts had taken place notwithstanding all this the mill corporations went right on as if nothing of importance was happening or could happen they were supreme and able to crush out all discontent as before they recked not of the terrible resentment the general rage long smouldering and now irrepressible that filled the workers on beholding their robbed envelopes and lives and they knew not that where labor is most suffering and most oppressed there it is also most terrible when aroused hence the revolt was a complete surprise that caused unprecedented alarm and for the first time in a labor dispute in the history of massachusetts later on necessitated the calling out of the militia the lawrence textile revolt reverberated throughout the industrial world large numbers in distant parts instinctively realized at once that something extraordinary had happened in new england's hotbeds of labor submission and exploitation the textile mills the textile wage slaves had openly and actually rebelled Lawrence, with its exploitation and luxury for the benefit of a few capitalists on one side, and its slavery and starvation for the many workers on the other, was now enacting the worldwide drama of the class struggle, of the irrepressible conflict between the interests of capital and labor. It was this profound fact that sounded the riot call, turned Lawrence topsy-turvy, and enabled the industrial democracy to arrive. End of chapter 1